You're listening to Monocle on Sunday, first broadcast on the 30th of January 2022 on Monocle 24. Good morning from Zurich. You're listening to Monocle on Sunday with me, Tyler Brule. Joining me on today's very, very busy program, Benno Zog is here. Also, Fabian Kinzelman from Blickseitung. But Benno is at the desk at the moment. Good morning, Benno. Good morning, Tyler. What do you have for us today? Hit stories, I was told. At least I heard this before we went on air. But <laughs> We're all about hit stories and the headlines. Well, while it's hard to avoid Ukraine and Ukraine-related topics this week, there's also some other stories in Swiss new- newspapers that caught my eye. Um, one being about tourist destination during COVID, slowly opening up and the other one probably the most swiss story you can ever have about the export of cheese it's going really well for swiss cheeses very good but we're not going to be able to get away from the ukraine now we're heading to kiev right now i am monocle's news editor chris chermak in kiev i'll be updating you on the mood on the ground as the threat of a russian invasion hangs over ukraine and its people Plus, the possibility of a hung parliament is around the corner. Portugal goes to the polls. I'll be joined on the line from Lisbon by Pedro Santos Guerrero from CNN Portugal and our editor-in-chief, Andrew Tuck, of course, will be on the line from London. We'll also be heading to Hong Kong as well to speak to our bureau chief there, James Chambers. It's the 30th of January, 2022, live from Zurich. This is Monocle on Sunday. Live from Zurich, this is Monocle on Sunday with Tyler Brule. And good morning from a rather overcast, maybe a promise of sunshine uh, in Zurich today. But nevertheless, uh, here we are in the heart of Seyfeld at Monocle's uh, HQ. I'm very happy to say, as you heard at the start of the program, Ben Zog is here this morning. You've also brought a playmate uh, around uh, as well. Someone from the world of also foreign affairs just down the street. But we'll start with you, Better. Good morning. Good morning, Tyler. Good to see you. Nice to see you. Uh, we'll be talking a lot about uh, the Ukraine. As we said, we'll be talking to our Chris Chermak. Uh, we have two people in, in Kiev at the moment. Uh, also checking in with others. But uh, maybe just a, a quick view uh, on your take of the Ukraine as things uh, stand at the moment on this Sunday morning. Well, in an odd way, in the past couple of weeks or so, things have moved really quickly in all kinds of fronts. And at the same time, things really haven't moved that much, apart from a few thousand additional Russian troops that have moved to the Ukrainian border. So this whole standoff is being ever more serious. There's more troops. And now the headlines have changed a bit as well, whereas some commentators have said, well, this is obviously posturing. This is a certain threat, but this is not what an actual invasion force looks like. We It lacks certain elements. And now the headlines are, for example, that Ru- the Russian army has also moved blood supplies and field hospitals to the border with Ukraine. And everyone says this makes the threat a bit more credible now. I myself wondered whether the Russian military has just read all these tweets that think tankers like myself have sent out that this isn't credible yet and now they make it even more credible and one wonders in the end still and we haven't any additional indication to that end whether an actual invasion or let's say just military overt military means are still in the cards whether they're just used as a tool to push negotiations which would still be more or less my take Russia is still keen to get its concessions at the negotiation table military means are just the last resort if you will. But as we know, the Kremlin has been ready to use this last resort quite overtly in other contexts. Um, And an additional element possibly is that there's a bit of a 
controversy between, let's say, Western allies of Ukraine and Ukraine itself. And I think you, Tyler, had had a look at that as well, the President Zelensky of Ukraine. The um, longest rambling press conference I've seen in a while. But anyway, <laughs> well, you can go and do some media I'm training as we discussed. But anyway. <laughs> Absolutely. But what he was saying in these rambling press conferences was, among other things, that some Western states are panicky, overly panicky, particularly the US and UK, which have suggested to some of its embassy staff to actually pull out of Ukraine. And he's saying Kiev is not under threat. You're exaggerating. But at the same time, he asked for additional help, more weapons uh, deliveries and so on. So there's a bit of a controversy around that. Fabian Kinzelman uh, is here, looks after the foreign desk just down the street, uh, also on Dufostrasse, where uh, Blick, Sonntagsblick is based in the in the Ringier uh, building. But uh, good morning, Fabian. Welcome to the program. Good morning, Tyler. Thanks for having me. Not at all. So uh, from your perspective, uh, if we're at the foreign desk uh, at uh, at Blick uh, at the moment and you look at this, uh, how, much, how much paper space or screen space are you devoting uh, to, to Ukraine versus, of course, other pressing topics uh, in the world of international news? A lot, actually. Yeah, I think uh, we didn't take it seriously in the beginning because I think no one did in December. Um, and then it escalated very quickly. But as Benno said, like... Um, it moved a lot and at the same time it didn't move at all but like we're following we're following up every day i'm trying to talking as many experts as possible like benno <laughs> and uh, i did an interview last week uh, with one of the leading foreign affairs experts in russia just to get like an insight on what might be on the mind of the kremlin uh, we're going to cross to London uh, now. Our editor-in-chief, uh, Andrew Tuck, uh, is there, or at least I believe he's in London. That's what it says on the piece of paper. But you, you never know what happens on a Friday afternoon and where Andrew's heading off to. Andrew, good morning. Where do we find you today? You find me in a very nice and sunny London. I'm, I'm very much here. Oh, it's good that it's, it's, it's sunny in London. So, uh, so Storm Malik, I know, didn't uh, reach that far south. So, uh, so the, 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 there's cloudless skies, I, I gather. Cloudless, not not a breeze. It's it's a it's a really glorious day. So yes, good time to start discussing Ukraine. Uh, wonderful. Now, Andrew, if if we sort of are as as far west, uh, at least in in your stretch of Europe as well, it's been interesting looking at the papers uh, this morning. Of course, Ukraine dominates, uh, or at least one of the lead stories uh, when you look at most of the British uh, press today. Uh, you know, is there is there a sense in London because uh, of course we've we've heard uh, murmurings that there's going to be a potential visit uh, by uh, by Prime Minister Johnson that he's going to go out there and maybe we should have to ask is that part of the ongoing diversion tactics off the back of Partygate get the PM on his A330 out there uh, and uh, of course have a press cavalcade and everything will quiet down back home. Yes, it's been. Uh, it was announced on Friday that he is he is heading to Eastern Europe for a, a tour to um, shore up uh, support and, uh, and, a, and a response, a unified response to Russia. But we know there isn't a unified response. We just have to look what's happening in Germany, for example, the unwillingness to supply machinery, to supply the hard machinery of, of, of military might to Ukraine, and also stopping neighbouring countries in the Baltics sending equipment to them as well. So we know there is a split. And Boris Johnson, I don't think, is central to this. This you know, one, one, because of the Partygate thing that is going on, he, he is distracted. And two, he just hasn't been a central figure in the, in, in the diplomacy here. But he is trying to insert himself into the story. He will be going out there. And he is supposedly going to have a, a phone conversation with Mr. Putin. But again, it seems unlikely that it's going to be a, a kind of breakthrough moment. 
I think what we're going to see is what Ben was talking about is this is just going to play out over some weeks. It feels like it may be until, not until after the, the Beijing Olympics that we, we will get to see whether the, the Russians really have the metal to go, go in and fight, the, the desire to fight, and what would happen after that. Just uh, to picking up on what Andrew was saying, who's going to be the lead player? Of course, we heard about this. Uh, we have a, we've had a phone call between uh, Mr. Macron and and Putin. Uh, we have, of course, uh, Germany with an array of uh, of yeah, new faces and uh, and new voices uh, that we're not really familiar with on the international uh, stage. So, where do we see leadership from the, the core of the continent? And of course, looking at the EU and 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 of course, not not to mention NATO as well, Benno. As uh, Andrew indicates, it's probably not going to be Boris Johnson. Um, there's, a, there's a number of these actors, as, as you hinted, Tyler, and obviously this bilateral meeting between the US and Russia, those are really important. That Blink, Secretary of State Blinken, that President Biden and so on meet their counterparts directly. That's probably the most important format to the Russians as well, who are keen on, first of all, status and to have this equal power in their perspective um, to meet them, but also because they don't take other actors as seriously. They consider NATO as being fully dominated by the United States, which would also mean that if you reach some kind of bilateral agreement with the US, not even an official treaty, that certain NATO policies will not be implemented. The, the ex expectation is that the US will force its allies, the same way that Russia can force its allies, or actually does, um, to comply. And another format that I consider quite interesting, and it's more tied to actually Ukraine, not this bigger, wider talk about European security, it's the so-called Normandy 4 between Ukraine, Russia, France and Germany. Important actors on, on the, the European continent. And within that format, there were major pushes back in the days, years, seven, eight years ago, um, on the Minsk agreements, for example, that are the only agreements that exist on eastern Ukraine. And this format was somewhat resuscitated because earlier this week, uh, advisors to this format met of all these four states, so including Ukraine and Russia at one table. Um, and two weeks from now in Berlin, there will be a follow-up. So we have to watch that. But this is mostly at the sidelines of current headlines, because it's not as flashy. It's often more of a technocratic nature. But that's where the, the real details are discussed about where heavy weapon system may be retreated and pulled out and so on. So we have to kind of watch these different formats at different levels. Fabienne, so there is this moment uh, for Berlin with its new leadership um, in, in two weeks' time. It's not really sort of a make-or-break moment, obviously, for Germany. But of course, this, the headlines have been dominated by, okay, the potential deployment of a field hospital, uh, some ropey helmets uh, that they've offered. And that's, you know, this is really what has kind of led the German narrative. Do you see that, uh, Foreign Minister Baerbach, this becomes a moment for her, her step-up? Uh, or is, is Germany going to continue to languish? Or do they have much choice uh, in the matter? Do they need to step up at some point? Yeah, they definitely have to. They are being heavily criticized also because like ex-Chancellor Gerhard Schröder is uh, working as a lobbyist um, for a Russian gas company. And um, especially, I think the, the SPD, the leading, the Social Democrats, they have to step up. I think it's not about Baerbock. I think she's like, her the, the tone she's setting towards Russia is, I think, quite good. And uh, like, she got compliments for that, but she can't act alone and Germany definitely has to like take a stand. Uh, Andrew, if uh, we move away from uh, the foreign pages though, uh, what, what else is uh, catching your eye and, uh, and what's going to be a, a conversation maybe, uh, at least from uh, your stretch of Europe uh, across the week? 
Well, Tyler, it's, it's funny uh, hearing our debate about Ukraine. Of course, the narrative has changed across the week. But, but also when you look at British politics, it's a bit kind of the same thing. It's, it's a repeat of many of the headlines you could have seen a week ago. We're in this odd period where we're waiting for this investigation into what happened at Downing Street about the party's so-called party gate. It's been rumoured to be landing any second, the whole week just gone. It never came to fruition. And this is because the police have now got involved and have asked for certain elements of it to be redacted if it's going to mess up their investigations. It's been pointed out this isn't a, a huge criminal case. It, it's, it's not a problem, and the, the police shouldn't probably have got involved. So now we have the headlines today that why are the police involved in this? W will this be... Uh, helping Boris Johnson because we'll have, have a, a heavily redacted report when it does finally land. But also just trying to unpick some of it this morning. So the, the Daily Mail has a story that the Prime Minister's partner uh, held a party on the day that Dominic Cummings, this, this much-loathed uh, advisor, finally left Downing Street, somebody who she had wanted to get rid of, it seems. And uh, apparently on the on the day that he 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 left, she's rumoured to have held a, a winner takes it all ABBA party for for her friends to uh, celebrate his departure. But now they're wondering whether the ABBA party will be. But I, I, this this is an important thing. This is the prime minister setting the tone and breaking lots of regulations. But the truth is that even if you're a, a harsh critic of the prime minister, this has dragged on for so long and so many weeks and some become so complicated. It, it seems very unlikely to me that it will land any killer blow on, on his uh, rule at 10 Downing Street. Andrew, what's the speculation? Because uh, I think people are maybe scratching their heads in other parts of the world saying we're hearing about this document that's going to come out. Of course, it's been very high profile that the, the, that, uh, that the Met has been called into this investigation. It is part of the problem that uh, also that the cops as well uh, may well have been part of this and uh, also been uh, sharing some, some warm loggers in the summer. Is that the issue? Yes, yeah, so the, and also the issue is they knew that laws were being broken and they didn't step in and do anything. Now, they're literally standing at the front door as people are coming back from the local off-licence with suitcases filled with wine that they've gone to get to kind of you know, keep spirits up in 10 Downing Street. So why did they not step in? There's, there's supposedly a, a phrase said by one of the people attending the party to a policeman who had said something that we're the only effing ones that are allowed to have a party and just remember it. Now, that's in the papers this morning. But again, it's hinted that that will be redacted because it was uh, maybe... The F word was used, that's why. Yeah. <laughs> so so that, that may be redacted. But it shows you that the police... And it's, 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 it's pretty awful because around the country, they were, you know, they, they were, they were stopping old people from sitting on benches because you could mm. only go to the park to do exercise. And when you have that level of interference from the police, and meanwhile they were standing by while parties were going on within Downing Street, if that's true, then I think it's going to put them in a very difficult spot. And just, uh, and I want to bring Fabian in as well. Are, as you sort of talk, we're in this sort of cycle where where stories are repeating themselves. And do you think there's also a change happening, Andrew, with the, with newsrooms at the moment? Because you know, here we've had, of course, you know, the UK. Uh, you're you're generally, I mean, let's say back to normal when it comes to regulations. But then there's something it doesn't quite feel back to normal. Of course, we saw uh, Prime Minister Meta Fredriksson in Denmark this week. Of course, they really announced that you know Denmark is they're pretty much done with 
with with this now. And of course, we're seeing measures starting to drop across Europe. Do you think there has to be also then a shift in newsrooms because there's been so much resource, comment, news gathering devoted to this pandemic that do you you sort of see a step change having to happen now? Well, what I'd say is it's been fascinating watching the, the, the media organizations where they fully embraced working from home from the beginning you know, as, as, and, and blared about it on the, either, well, on the air or on their pages to say, look how, how great we're doing. Whereas other companies were seen as being a bit harsher and making people get back into the newsroom much earlier. Just look, a week ago or so, one of the papers here ran a series, a paper on the left, a, a series on remembering the office. And you got to the heart of the issue there. You, you saw that there was a group of people who had no, no desire ever to go back into the office. Their newspaper had moved to a position where the office was now seemingly redundant. And I think you see that in the, in, in the reporting that lands on page. Everything is pushed through this filter of the person sitting at home in their, their house where, where they don't want to be too far out in the world often. And so there's a lot of kind of caution in their reporting often on the left. Whereas on the right, some of the papers have been a bit more gung-ho. There, they, there, it goes to the other extreme. They're kind of, they're kind of crushing like a, maybe like a Russian tank, everybody who stands in their way. It's like, you know, how dare people still be wearing masks, et cetera, et cetera. But in the middle of it, I, I, I am still concerned. There was a report out just this week just saying the number of staff who are refusing to go back to the office, some two-fifths of uh, uh, all, all office staff have said they have n no desire and, and are unwilling to ever return to the office. And that happens in newsrooms and media organizations as well. So thankfully, we, as you know, Tyler, we're, we're all back in the office. And you see it in the spirit of what lands on page and, and putting a show together like this. Andrew, you've got to go get your shepherd dogs as well, just to make sure the desks are full tomorrow, I would imagine. So we're going to have to, we're going to, have to leave you there before we head to the camp. But Thank I just you. wanted, Fabian, just uh, wanted to pick up with you um, as, as well. Yeah, you know, if you, if you are looking at the pages of Blick and or if you're looking at the, at the newspaper, you know, online, it's a, you know, incredible what, uh, the, just the amount of space that, of course, the pandemic's taken up over the last two years. Do you think there has to be then a mindset as thinking, wow, suddenly you've actually got more space to actually go and do, you know, more foreign coverage? Uh, it means a, certainly a shift in what they have to do on the opinion pages as well. Do you, do you feel that there almost has to be like a, a reset of the newsroom in many ways? Yes, and it's already, it's changing and it already changed in some ways. So we can clearly see that Corona is not a dominating topic anymore. So I think we had the second uh, Sonntagsblick uh, cover front in a row without Corona on the, <laughs> on the front page. So it is changing and we have to like circle back in on our normal routines and our normal topics we had before. Um, on uh, regular routines, but someone who had to step out of it, uh, we're crossing over uh, to, to Kiev uh, right now. Our Chris Chermak uh, is there, uh, our, our news editor. He's been out there for a couple of days. Uh, good morning, Chris. Good morning, Tyler from Kiev. Uh, listen, uh, it sounds like Eurovision. Yes, good morning, Kiev. Uh, could you just tell us uh, maybe uh, at, at the moment, you probably obviously heard the start of, of the conversation. And, and I think, you know, many of us sort of, you know, rounded out the week on Friday, sort of, you know, looking at and listening to obviously uh you know in in a way sort of the the the, the view from the ground uh, hearing mr zelensky say look at can everyone just calm down for a moment um and maybe even uh the us needs to pipe down um a little bit on this but um, how, how have you observed things well absolutely tyler i think that press conference from uh from friday really was quite extraordinary for the sort of disjointedness of it the media asking 
about the threat, uh, the constant threat from Russia, and Zelensky sort of batting those questions away, asking everyone to calm down. It is something that you get really from everybody that you speak to here, to be perfectly honest, you know, the government, but also people, analysts, everyone is sort of at pains to stress here that uh, fear, spreading fear, spreading the idea that an invasion is imminent, is doing Vladimir Putin's job for him by scaring away investment, hitting Ukraine's economy. That's really the primary concern at the moment. Um, and there's also just, uh, they're sort of keen to stress that this is a common reality here. You know, they did, they have mentioned that, you know, 126,000 Russian troops were amassed at the border back in March and April. Uh, one philosopher I spoke to here, uh, Volodymyr uh, Yermolenko, talked about living with this dual reality, as he called it, where Ukrainians here basically just uh, they go about their regular lives. They have they have their, you know, their their life. They go they're in restaurants that life is bustling here in Kiev at the moment. You know, everyone investment is continuing. Most businesses are, of course, still open, but also continuing with projects. You know, they're they're moving forward with plans that they have. And then at the same time, you're just sort of living with this other reality that all of that could change at a moment's notice if, say, Russia did decide to invade and you would be forced to either evacuate or take the bag that you've packed uh, or, or, you know, sit in a, in a siege, uh, you know, sit, sit in a siege here in Kiev and sort of hunker down in a, in a, in a bunker somewhere. So there is this dual reality, but Ki people here in Kiev and Ukraine have been living with it for such a long time that they just kind of shrug it off. And I think that's what they want the international community to do as well. Shrug it off, keep investing in Ukraine in the meantime. Otherwise, you're really just playing directly into Vladimir Putin's hands. Uh, so, so one thing, Chris, is, of course, when we've been looking and, and, and watching uh, coverage um, on, on the major networks, and you can really see actually on the US side that, uh, that the likes of, you know, of CNN are devoting a lot of, of time to this. This is, you know, it's a moment for CNN uh, when these things type, uh, start to happen. Uh, and, and of course, they're a well-organized, a well-oiled organization when it comes to, of course, covering conflicts. But, you know, obviously, there's a massive mobilization of, of, of international press there um, at, at the moment. But in terms of mobilization, what I haven't seen, or maybe it doesn't exist, do you notice uh, in any sense of yeah, what would be sort of a heightened presence of just, just patrols or, or anything that's sort of bubbling up on the side of, of, of the civil defense or, or, or the, the Ukraine military in general? You know, that's that's a good question. Um, what I've seen in, in Kiev itself, you don't really notice it, certainly not on the streets or anything like that. You notice it more, if you will, on the sidelines, people here who are looking for it. So, for example, yesterday we did go to a weekly training on Saturday on Saturdays of the Territorial Defense Forces. That was about 50 people who have uh, have never joined the army, are not in the military, and they're preparing to train. They were they were doing lots of basic drills, essentially, uh, in order to prepare. This is something that was also formalized by law in Ukraine at the start of this year. They enshrined this national resistance into law, which allows regular people to 
arm themselves and be ready, if you will, uh, for in the event of an invasion. And you saw a lot of people, you know, were very halting, sort of coming for the first time, or even if they come a few times, you know, going through these drills in, in quite nervous in some ways, sort of trying to focus. There were also, and to your point about CNN and us other journalists, there were a lot of journalists there as well, which sort of distracted them a little bit from it. Um, but then beyond that as well, one thing that was less covered, for example, even in Kiev, you have lectures going on. We went to a training lecture specifically for women in Kiev, for example, which was also run by an army, uh, somebody from the army who focused on how you can get your homes ready, the need to stock up on supplies in the event that a siege would take place uh, in Kiev finding your nearest bomb shelter also, but also thinking about evacuation routes. And uh, and that was an example of an event that was, there were about over a hundred people there, but it had been completely oversubscribed. 4,500 people had signed up to this event to learn more about just how to prepare. And so that's the kind of thing that is happening in the background. Everyone says, well, we do have our bags packed. We have something ready in case. So it's not, you know, that's what's sort of hard about how to tell this story in a way, Tyler, because it's not that it's ever present on the streets. It's all happening in the background, sort of quietly while people go about their daily lives. So, Ben, I just want to pick up on what's quietly going on uh, in the background. Of course, we always sort of think about sort of backroom diplomacy, back-channel diplomacy uh, at times um, like this. Do we see someone else emerge? We've had, we've had many people putting up their hands. I mean, not just, you know, Geneva wanting to, of course, host more discussions. Of course, there's Berlin is happening. Uh, we've, we've seen our friends in Ankara uh, as, as well. Uh, do you think there's anything else or do you have any sense that there are other discussions going on? And at least, of course, yeah, in the realm of regional jockeying, uh, too. And of course, people are pumping up their own national brand. In all fairness, there are loads of players out there um, and venues to, to host peace talks, if they can even be called peace talks, are plentiful. I mean, Vienna and Geneva and so on are the obvious ones, but there's also certainly others. The problem is, it's really not currently a lack of formats or a lack of platforms or a lack of potential hosts um, that is the actual issue. Um, and not even of heads of states are getting involved. We heard of a President Macron just earlier about French foreign, uh, German foreign minister paying visits to the, to the region. It is really about the actual willingness to talk, to compromise, to listen to each other, um, to tone down, to, to somewhat reduce maximalist demands and so on. This is the real issue. And whether they negotiate in Zurich, in Geneva, in Helsinki, in Bangkok, wherever, that doesn't make the big difference. As long as major powers are involved and genuinely care about the context um, and are willing to listen to each other and find some kind of compromise. And that's obviously up for both sides in a way. Uh, Fabien, just before we go back to uh, to Chris in, in Kiev, I'm just your take on this. If we look at NATO um, and what's going on in in Brussels, is this is this just a good wake up call for NATO um, as well? Because of course, you know we've seen you know not countless uh, incidents, but a lot of people saying that you have an organization you know which is clearly not fully aligned, uh, and now we almost see a multi tier style of NATO at the moment. You know the Danes sending a frigate and and four fighter aircraft. Uh, to the Baltics, other other nations, uh, you know, sitting back uh, as well. But is this the type of jolt that uh, NATO has needed? Just you know, if if for nothing else, to feel a little bit sharper. I think you're completely right that it is a wake up call. Um, I 
don't think it would have been urgently needed, especially not that way. But NATO, of course, has to think like how what's uniting them. And if it really makes sense, for example, like to to yeah, to grow even more. Uh, Chris, just uh, on that, and I, I don't think you can sort of uh, probably spot the NATO advisor on the streets of, 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 of Kiev. Uh, but when you look around hotel lobbies, which are always interesting places uh, to, to gather during times uh, like this, uh, and and maybe also arrivals uh, in the arrivals areas of airports to see who is flying in, uh, who else is out there? Can, can you spot the engineer, the consultant, the advisor? Maybe Maybe it's a game you and our colleague Paige could play. <laughs> it is something we'd be happy to play. It looks like there will be another shipment, for example, of military supplies coming in from the U.S. early next week. So that's something we might be keeping an eye on. I mean, there is there is so much coming in. We have also been looking at at hotels where we spoke mostly also with more the, the journalists, of course, about 15 CNN reporters who are sitting at the Intercontinental, for example. But yes, these kinds of preparations are are definitely underway. They are sort of ongoing. We also spoke to the the Red Cross, uh, for example. They're heading back out to eastern Ukraine, um, their spokesman, uh, tomorrow to take a look at what is happening there and kind of what kind of things they need back over out at the front. Um, So yes, there are are a number of angles to this. And the one thing I just wanted to add is I think one of the messages you get here, though, is it's not only about the military advisors from abroad, the NATO advisors coming in, the help that they want. The message you feel that you hear here a lot is just we are ready. We are not as weak a nation as you presume us to be, if you will, whether that's Russia or the West. We have a strong fighting force at this point. We have rebuilt our army since 2014, and we are ready to fight. And for that matter, 50% of the country, says, you know, people say they're prepared to defend the country. 30% are prepared to take up arms to do it. So the message that you get here is very much, we are a confident nation. We can do this. We welcome the attention. We welcome the help. We welcome all these uh, people flying in. But we are also able to do this on our on our own. And that's part of the reason why they argue here, Vladimir Putin's not going to dare try an invasion of our country. Chris Jermak, uh, our news editor uh, in Kiev, we're going to have to leave it there. We're a little bit late uh, with the news headlines, only three minutes late. Uh, Emma Nelson is uh, standing by in London. Thank you very much indeed, Tyler. North Korea claims to have carried out what's believed to be its biggest missile launch in five years. South Korea and the US have all condemned the launch. Italy's parliament has re-elected President Sergio Mattarella for a second term in office. The 80-year-old president was persuaded to stay on after MPs failed to agree on an alternative candidate in seven rounds of voting. A fierce storm mixing heavy snow with powerful winds is sweeping across the east coast of the United States. It's caused scattered power cuts, hit public transport and forced the cancellation of thousands of flights. And police in Rajasthan have set up a dedicated team to recover up to 14 goats which have been stolen from locals' homes. A month after 70 donkeys went missing, footage has now been recovered of a group of unidentified thieves going into several people's houses in the Hanumangar district, removing up to seven goats in one sweep and loading them into a small car. Those are the headlines. Back to you, Tyler, in Zurich. Thank you. And is there an image of the seven goats in the small car? There is not an image of the seven goats in small car, which is absolutely terrible. But they are all suspecting that it's actually locals who are stealing each other's goats. But I would. I mean, this sounds like a proper crisis. I mean, missing donkeys and goats. I mean, this is it's really not good. I thought this this struck me as a new game to play at the next Monocle Christmas market.
<laughs> I, I rather like that. I mean, I could see sort of obstacle courses, all kinds of things. And of course, we could co-op the park next to us. Uh, and maybe we'll catch you before the end of the show. Uh, just 1034 here in Zurich. It's 934 uh, in Portugal, where we're heading now, because voters in that country go to the polls today for the country's parliamentary elections. Opinion polls have shown the race between the governing socialists and the main centre-right opposition is too close to call. It's led to suggestions that a hung parliament could be on the horizon. Well, I'm joined now from Lisbon by Pedro Santos Guerrero, executive editor at CNN Portugal. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, maybe if we could uh, start, and, and this is you know, one of these, uh, of course, news events that maybe uh, across Europe uh, and elsewhere would have bubbled up to the surface, but the elections in Portugal are slightly being overshadowed, of course, by uh, events uh, on the other side of Europe. But uh, from, from your perspective, and of course, it's going to be a, a big, I guess, 24, 36 hours for you, uh, of course, covering this. Um, yeah. how, how are you sort of looking at it? You can't call it at the moment, but are, are you heading for a hung parliament? Well, you're right. It's all tied up. Uh, so the, the polls show. Uh, and it is tied up not only between the socialists and the social democrats, the two main parties, but it's also tied up among left-wing and right-wing parties. So forming a stable government may, may be difficult. Uh, we may have an outcome in Portugal close to what happened in the latest German election, where you had several negotiations uh, after the election among parties until you had a stable government. Uh, they, that may happen in, in, in Portugal. Uh, Pedro, one of the things that uh, when I was in uh, yeah, Lisbon uh, a couple of months ago, you, you saw stories and you, and you, you were talking to, to analysts, uh, people in business. They said one of the interesting things about, about Portugal is it's managed to sort of, you know, resist the tide of, uh, of populism. But now in the last few weeks, you know, we've, of course, al also seen the rise of a particular party um, as well. And is that going to have much bearing on it uh, that, that a, a, let's say, a right wing agenda uh, has come to the fore maybe, you know, much more than people would have predicted uh, four or five months ago? Um, well, not more than four or five months ago, I suppose. Uh, we are talking about a, a right-wing populist uh, party. Uh, it's, uh, well, the polls now show that they may have about 7%. It's not that much, but uh, it may, may uh, make it a, a party important to forming a coalition, in, in a right-wing coalition. And that's the main issue uh, when, we t when we look at this party. So it really has been a central party in the, in the election so far. Many, the other parties have discussed a lot about it uh, because they fear that they may need, uh, or, or, or other countries, or other parties may need to do some sort of coalition or agreement, including that right-wing party. And that would be the first time in, 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 in Portugal, and that, as you said, may put, it, put forward some right-wing agenda in, in the government. And everyone else is hoping that that's not the case, but it may happen, yeah. And just um, if um, we went down to uh, maybe a, a farm, small village in, in Alentejo, if we were in the suburbs of, of Porto, what are the dominating themes uh, around this election? Because here you have a nation, you know, Portugal, uh, you know, 
on, on a global stage because of your submarine commander who led the vaccination campaign. It was incredible uh, how Portugal became a bit of a, of a poster child in terms of how to roll out a vaccine. Uh, it rose to international headlines amidst all of this, uh, in, at least at many turns, has managed things quite well. So let's we park the pandemic uh, to one side. Uh, what, what's the biggest concern of voters right now? Well, the economy. Uh, Portugal is, is, a, is still a low growth and low salaries economy. Um, and we're now facing a high public debt uh, after the pandemic, of course. And so that's the main issue. How are the salaries going to move up? And that's the real the, the real issue that that worries everyone, whether in Alentejo, like you said, or in in the outskirts of uh, of Lisbon. Not the pandemic itself, like you said, Portugal has been a some sort of poster child. We have about ninety percent of the people vaccinated, so it's not uh, a big problem in Portugal. Quite on the contrary, but the economy still is, and low salaries still are the key issue here in Portugal. Uh, Pedro Santos Guerrero uh, from CNN Portugal, uh, I think we'll be checking in with you or at least your colleagues uh, as well, probably uh, tomorrow when there's a little bit more clarity as to where things uh, end up. You're listening to Monocle on Sunday, just uh, almost 10.40 uh, here in Zurich. We're going for away for a very short break. To mark our 150th issue, Monocle magazine is bringing you a February edition that's spry, wry, witty and wise. Our first ever humour special meets satirists with a guts to take on governments, suggests that mirth can be as meaningful as anger and knows when to crack a smile. Elsewhere in the issue, we hear from Prime Minister Sanna Marin on brand Finland and report from Ukraine on life lived in the shadow of conflict. Plus, the inspiration and insight on where to visit, shop and dine this year. Not to mention our celebration of the most alluring and ambitious town halls, which inspire the cities which they represent. The edition is on all good newsstands now, or you can order a copy of Monocle's February issue today. Subscribe so you don't miss an issue and get instant access online at monocle.com. It's at 10.40 here in Zurich. You're listening to Monocle on Sunday with me, uh, Tyler Brilli. Of course, you're at the top of the show. Uh, Benno had a big promise, uh, of course, of some, yeah, obviously key and essential stories uh, to us uh, here in Switzerland. And of course, it has to do with dairy. Absolutely. What could be a more Swiss story than one about cheeses and how Swiss cheeses are doing in terms of exports and production and so on? And how, are they, how are they doing? Well, they are doing excellently, of course. I hope you had no doubt about that. Uh, and the NZZ reported on that this weekend quite structurally that particularly exports of Swiss cheese are going up in terms of volume, in terms of um, worth of, of cheeses, including to destinations like France, a country that very much has its own cheese tradition. So it's actually stiff competition in supermarket shelves there. Um, the article also goes into other aspects of it, for example, that there's certainly subsidies involved that push ads both in the country and abroad to advertise for Swiss cheese. And there's a bit of a controversy also around these ads, for example, ads here in Switzerland, including in some trams in Zurich, say essentially that the dairy industry in Switzerland is good for biodiversity as well. And by the account of some, some NGOs and, and ecologists, this is quite a bit of a stretch. But overall, cheese is going well, but not 
the same the same kinds of cheeses let's say emmentaler for example long like number one export cheese is not doing too too well whereas others above all gruyere which is one of my favorites as well is doing really really well so we see a bit of a shift and maybe one one last element of it at the same time milk is not going too too well so people maybe switch milk for oat milk or whatever is out there i'm sure that's that's a huge trend that also shows in sales but cheese is doing super well and just the last element imports of cheese are going up as well so switzerland also imports more cheese adding up to a consumption of a whopping 23 kilograms of cheese per capita each year quite well, impressive i i i do my share of that yeah i was gonna say what are you what we, we have to sort of highlight benno's favorite cheese it would be Gruyere is, is pretty nice. It Gruyere is. In, in a melted Those format? or No, actually not. It's like an actual cheese bar okay. with some bread. That's all it takes. Maybe a glass of wine to uh, Okay, so Fabian, it, it, it begs you to, of course, uh, jump in on this. Yeah, Benno, I have some really bad news for you. I'm so sorry. I hate to bring it to you, but novel food uh, is progressing a lot. And um, so my colleague uh, Tobias Marti reported on Sonntag's Blick today that um, novel food is like... Um, um, is getting more and more important and actually so like the industrial like the, the fake cheese basically and um, it's not setting a to Benno <laughs> and it's I'm very sorry and it's it's not that the Swiss are uh, having the lead in here it's the, uh, it's the Netherlands who are progressing the most Okay, well, there's probably a diplomacy uh, angle to all, the, all the of numbers, that. Yeah. The numbers are on my side. <laughs> they are, maybe. Listen, we're... Uh, well, now. Wait 10 years. <laughs> we're going to head uh, to, to Hong Kong uh, right now. Our James Chambers, uh, our bureau chief, uh, is uh, there for us. Good afternoon, James. Morning, Tyler. Uh, very, very nice to hear from you. It's been, it's, uh, it's been a while. Uh, maybe we should uh, take a view to the very quiet uh, airport uh, in, in Hong Kong. It seems that one of the stories that constantly uh, bubbles up when we look at brands out of Hong Kong are the woes uh, of, of Cathay Pacific. Uh, of course, one of the, the major global airlines, uh, but uh, it, all kinds of different stories uh, surrounding it. And, and a lot of it has had to do with, of course, pilots quarantined uh, and, 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 a, and a not a largely grounded fleet. But uh, many aircraft on the ground. Uh, do we want to start there? Yeah, I think up the, the like the narrative for Cathay up to now has been all of the kind of the job cuts that it's had to make over the last few years because it doesn't have many planes in the air. Uh, but more recently, um, it's all been about uh, pilots actually resigning. Um, you know, there's thousands of, of pilots based in Hong Kong. A lot of them are, um, you know, expats, Aussies and Canadians and Brits. Uh, and I guess the, the the headlines coming out now are that they've just had enough of this, all, all of this, um, and they're handing in their resignations uh, and leaving. Um, so, uh, you know, Cathay's been trying to, to get them back with promises of, of, of bonuses. Um, but you hear, hear all these stories about, you know, hundreds of Cathay pilots applying for one job at Emirates or, or Qatar. So it, it does feel like uh, after two years, they've had enough. Uh, James, and off the back of that, um, there is a, a well, I don't know if it's a leaked document, but certainly a document that landed on uh, on your desk, uh, which is has been this EU report uh, looking at uh, the stages and, and I guess various scenarios as to how Hong Kong might reopen. Uh, and uh, certainly when it made it, when it, when it, made it uh, my way um, at the end of last week, it's, um, it's rather shocking reading. It is very shocking. It's... Uh... 
It's been called a draft report. Um, it was definitely leaked out. It's something the European Chamber of Commerce in Hong Kong has not made public itself, uh, but ha- it has been well covered this week in all the major international papers, especially the business ones. Um, and as you said, it, it it's kind of have the, has this kind of think tank uh, forecasty look to it. Uh, they've clearly been doing a lot of uh, work and talking to businesses just to, to gather what everyone's thinking. And then they put this document together to share, you know, internally and, and with their, all the, the European businesses here. Uh, and as you said, it, it, you know, it draws out uh, four different scenarios um, with the most likely one uh, being that Hong Kong could reopen fully um, in late 2023 or more likely spring 2024, um, which would obviously mean that we've got a, two more years to go and we're only halfway through. Um, and when I read uh, that report uh, last week, you know, the, the, the logic uh, seems very sound uh, and you can't argue with their their findings. You know, what the, their, their main concern is, is in Hong Kong, we can't decide our own future anymore. We have to follow what's happening in China. And in China, their, their own domestic vaccines are proving not to work or they're not as effective. Um, and they haven't yet got their own mRNA vaccines. The, the Pfizer one uh, isn't available there. Um, so they're going to wait, uh, so says this report, for, for China to develop their own uh, uh, mRNA vaccines, inoculate the whole population. Um, and then that's going to get us to, you know, late next year and, and why it might be 2024 before uh, we all start flying again. Well, James, um, maybe we should look about uh, look at places uh, reopening uh, and, and maybe... <laughs> where you need to go next so you can be uh, a, mo- a more mobile uh, correspondent. If we um, do a, maybe a bit of a spin around the, the bigger neighborhood, um, you know, Thailand, Philippines, uh, Indonesia, we're now starting to see for the first time uh, some some proper momentum. Uh, and But I guess on that, if you sort of look to the ASEAN region, is it also joined up thinking as well? Or is everyone thinking as a bit of a block that, okay, listen, if I'm going to head to Bangkok and I've not been there for two years, then actually I might want to go to Jakarta. I might want to go to Manila, or or is this all a little bit unilateral in approach? It's very much unilateral. There's no joined up thinking here, and and each of the you know the countries in ASEAN have been doing their own thing. You know, trying to open up and, and enclosing, and um, but you know the the good news is, uh, and in in stark contrast to here in Hong Kong, uh, there is a conversation about how you know Omicron isn't uh, as lethal as all the previous uh, mutations. Um, and, you know, they are ready to, to open up again far quicker than they, they were before. I guess the concern for people here is that there's no date in mind. There's no discussion of, of, of opening up. Whereas, you know, places like Thailand, you know, they've said on February 1st, on Tuesday, we're going to uh, kickstart our test and go uh, scheme again so that you can, as long as you're vaccinated, come to Thailand uh, without having to quarantine. Um, and, you know, you look further around, Vietnam's doing something similar. They want to open up in, in April. Um, so what are these countries doing? Is they, you know, they're putting a, at least putting a date on it, uh, which is giving uh, people a, a bit of hope. Um, and obviously here in Hong Kong, we're hoping that will give put pressure on, on, on places like Hong Kong because you are seeing uh, a lot of people uh, leave. Um, you know, the, the, the number of people who seem to be going to, uh, to, to Singapore uh, goes up and up every day. Every conversation I have is, is with people in various industries who are uh, looking at moving to, to Singapore. Um, so we, there is this feeling that, you know, Asia is 
is starting to, to follow Europe and all the lessons that you guys have, have learnt uh, over the last uh, six months with, with Omicron. We've, you know, everyone's been watching that uh, and, and taking notice. Um, and so hopefully uh, we can begin to move uh, far quicker over here. James, um, I want to uh, maybe just change tack because we're uh, less than a week away uh, from the, the opening ceremonies of the uh, Winter Olympics um, in Beijing. And I want to bring in uh, both both Benno and Fabian on that. But maybe let's start with you. Uh, yeah, if you're flipping around uh, the, the TV channels, I mean, is there is there a sense, a sense of excitement uh, that uh, that this is upon us? Because certainly if you look at uh, TV networks here, I mean, normally they would be in heavy promo time uh, and, and of course talking about their deployment uh, of reporters at the games, et cetera. But of course, we know that uh, most networks are not even able to send uh, people over. So there, it's, you know, it's it actually now sort of makes Tokyo look like it was, you know, an original Olympic Games. Uh, this is rather quiet here. But from your side of the world, it's on your doorstep. What's the feeling there? Well, yeah, you'd, th- you'd think that uh, at least in the in the media, we'd have some coverage, but it's almost like it's not happening. Um, you don't you don't see that much other than, you know, the sense that they're obligated to put uh, some coverage in. Um, and I think part of that probably to do with the fact that, you know, where I am here in Hong Kong, it's, you know, we're not a uh, not a cold, snowy place. There aren't there won't be a lot that many people, athletes flying up to uh, compete. And I remember it's the same, you know, in the UK, as you know, the UK never does very well at the Winter Olympics. So people don't really pay as much attention. But I'd like to know what it's like in, in Norway, for instance. Obviously, they're expected to, to top the table. And I know from friends who live there, you know, they think the the Winter Games are the big games, not the uh, the summer one. But, um, you know, from here in, in Hong Kong and looking you know outside of China, there doesn't seem to be that much attention on it at all. Um, you know, we do have Chinese New Year uh, in between now and then. Um, I mean, it's it's the eve of, of, of New Year's Eve today, so people are more focused on uh, getting buying their flowers and buying their pork ribs for their big uh, New Year's Eve dinner tomorrow. Um, so there's a kind of a, a more of a kind of a party mood uh, focusing on, on on the holidays. Um, but it'll be interesting to see how many people, you know, come Friday, sit down uh, and and actually watch the show. Um, it does have a very different feel to it to the uh, the 2008 one. Uh, Fabian, I want to ask you from a perspective of uh, of Blick, uh, when of course you know this is of course mm-hmm. Winter Games. You could argue a little bit more important uh, to Switzerland uh, than than the Summer Games. Has there been a clearing of extra desks, extra manpower, uh, sitting in your newsroom uh, to? cover the ski events and, and all of these things? Oh, definitely. We always do that when there's kind of big sports event like that, especially with these kind of sports event. Um, but what I'm seeing more and more is like quarantine diaries, reports on like infected, uh, yeah. Athletes, athletes and, and officials, etc. Officials. And um, I don't know. That's that's something completely different from from the years before. And uh, do you have uh, has Blick been able to send anybody out there? Uh, have you been able to get a journalist uh, there? Or again, is it through the wire services and uh, yeah, through the regular feeds that you're doing this? Because of course, I mean, even we've seen NBC. Of course, you'd say sort of the lead network globally for covering the games. Most of it's going to be covered from the U.S. and just obviously taking satellite feeds in. But what about for you guys? We are definitely there because sports is so important for Blick. Um, but I'm actually not sure how big the team is this year. Okay, so pro- probably probably minimal. I would just this, and I want to bring this back also. Here we're sitting uh, in in Switzerland. Of course, it's home to uh, the IOC, 
And, you know, if you're, Ben, I just want you to speculate a little bit. If you're sitting in Lausanne right now, you've had, yeah, you've had not, you know, not that Tokyo was, was a dud, but it was the first time you've had a game delayed. Uh, and, and of course, you know, there was certainly uh, so much outcry around it. Should it have happened? Should it not have happened? Here we are in China again. If you look at the Olympic brand, do you think here we also need a reset? And you could have said that maybe the IOC should have had several resets uh, over the past mm-hmm. decades. But uh, but let's put that aside to one moment. Uh, they're really going to have to come back swinging uh, with with Paris uh, in in many formats, uh, and you know, and I, I would say also in terms of maybe political tone. Even though they try not to be political, uh, we, we see what happens with the games. Indeed. So if we look at all this kind of almost riot gear or nuclear attack kind of gear that regular local staff in China is wearing, taking care of athletes and so on, this is not the kind of photos the IOC can be keen on. And the same is is uh, is true with, let's say, sustainability aspects, which have been really important. Um, we see green grass around Beijing. It's all artificial snow that is being used. There's Obviously, billions being spent, but hardly any spectators, particularly not from abroad. So it's counter the Olympic spirit. It's countering the sustainability aspect. And in a way, the IOC and the Olympics have been in a bit of a crisis for almost a decade, because I still vividly remember the Winter Olympics in Sochi, Russia, the most expensive ever. I think spending around $40 billion that could have been spent on, on better things at the time, for sure, was in a whole network of corruption as well. And it echoes the similar kind of headlines we see when it comes to FIFA, UEFA, all these big football games as well. So a bit of a reorientation of the entire brand and what it actually stands for and where its priorities should be is important. And maybe Paris is an opportunity. The very fact that it's in Paris, but also held around it in all kinds of regions. It's not just the one city that has to build all the facilities. It's a city that already has infrastructure, including transport and hotels and so on. They don't have to be built on green fields. So I think that's certainly an opportunity. But is the IOC ready for that? Because there's loads of structural issues there. Corruption, if we call it that, is an element of it. Um, So a bit of soul searching would be warranted, but I'm cautiously optimistic Mm. about that, only cautiously. Uh, James in Hong Kong, just before we go, do you think that um, maybe the sentiment in Beijing, uh, not on, on, well, even on the part of the organizers, let's just get this out of the way because this is not the bid uh, that uh, that Beijing was looking for. You you know, you would have imagined that Xi Jinping, that this was going to be a major China moment, uh, of course, when they they won it uh, all those years ago. Uh, But of course, it's a rather different picture now. Yeah, it's worth remembering for the IOC that the the country they beat uh, to host it was Kazakhstan. So at least the IOC can be glad it's not uh, hosting it there. Uh, But, you know, if we we look back at what this uh, Olympics was being positioned as, it was meant to be uh, Xi Jinping's swan song. Uh, You know, he's meant to be stepping down soon. And this was his, you know, this was his event. Uh, He's the one who basically convinced the the IOC to give it to China. But, you know, as as we all know, He's not stepping down now. He's uh, expected to become, you know, uh, chairman or, you know, a leader for life uh, later this year. So I guess, I mean, it's gone down in, in the list of uh, priorities for him. Um, and I guess he just wants to see uh, a, a smooth show. Uh, I guess it was very, he made a very pointed remark when he met with the, the IOC head in Beijing when he said this will be the first uh, Olympics or multi-sports games that's actually uh, gone ahead on schedule. Um, so for him, I guess he sees that as an achievement, but I guess it's not something that's reflected around the world. 
James Chambers, we're going to have to leave it there. Uh, Kung Hee Fat Choi, uh, very happy uh, Chinese New Year to you. Uh, don't uh, get too messy with those uh, pork ribs, and we'll be talking to you uh, very soon. Uh, just be- before we go, uh, Fabian Ben, I'll just put you on the spot. Uh, maybe can you call any sort of uh, winners, uh, giant slalom? Uh, where, where is Switzerland going to do well uh, in, in these games? Uh, where are people going to be sort of waving their red and white flags for who? I told you you should let me know if you want to talk sports. I literally have no clue. Okay, well then we'll go, we'll go over to we'll go over to Benno then as well. <laughs> well, I'm certainly not an expert on that. Um, a sports it's, diplomacy, come on. It's very important, but Switzerland as well in an, in a number of these disciplines. But obviously the most important one is always alpine skiing, the slalom and the and the giant slalom and so on. But also others like curling, for example, which at every Winter Olympics is surprisingly popular all of a sudden, and then people for another four years don't really care about it um, but certainly Switzerland has high expectations as always and some gold medals need to be somewhere in there otherwise it's a disappointment on that front as well. Fabian but will you be tuning in to watch anything? Definitely not. Okay. So, so <laughs> not you, only because it's the Olympics also because it's in China. Yeah okay and and I think uh, the sentiment is probably felt uh, by, by many others on that point as well. Fabian Kinsman uh, from uh, Blake Benno Zog Andrew Tucker back over in London Emma Nelson thank you very much uh, for uh, today's program. Also big thanks to Chris Chermak over in Kiev, James Chambers in Hong Kong, and Pedro Santos Guerrero in Lisbon. Our producers today, Emma Nelson and Marcus Hippie, our studio manager in Zurich, Desiree Bandley, and in London, Nora Hall. I'm Tyler Ridley. Monocle on Sunday is back next week. I'm also back with the briefing uh, at uh, 1300 CET tomorrow. Goodbye. <laughs>